1 Thessalonians, we are in chapter 4. Our Ventura campus will be joining us for the sermon. Let's let them know that we love them so much and we're with them. I heard that uh, last week, because of the subject matter, was a little tense. Was that true? No? Oh, okay. I heard it was a little tense in here, like talking about sexual purity and all that. That's, maybe it was first service. First service said it was you guys. First service was like, no, we're good. It was second service. They were tripping. But you guys, okay. All right. You guys are all sexually pure and just fine. No problem. Well, we're going to pick it up this week. Uh, the Apostle Paul is going to contrast for us a little bit the difference between lust and love. He's going to transition from the lust that he spoke about and the holiness and the purity that ought to be in the life of the believer last week to the love that ought to be in the life of the believer. In our text this week, we'll be looking at uh, verses 9 through 12 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The title of this message is Love, Self-Sacrifice, and Honest Work. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll start reading in verse 9. It says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition." to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we've read your word this morning and we now talk about it, study it, preach it, hear it, We ask that it would have a powerful and effective work in us, Lord. Save us this morning from just hearing another sermon. By the work of your Holy Spirit, bring us into a place of response. Lord, I've been tremendously challenged by your word this week and by the content of it here and what I'll say in this sermon. I'm I'm in many ways preaching to myself. And we want to be a people who are faithful Jesus to you and to your word. And so Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to hear. Help us to believe. Help us to comprehend. Help us to understand and to center our lives around Christ and live properly as it pertains to loving one another. Please, Lord, now we pray together that you would anoint me to teach and preach, teach and preach in a way that's faithful to your word and helpful to these dear brothers and sisters. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the primary call of the text is for us Christians, talking to Christians now, is for us to love one another. There's some other stuff in the text, but the primary call of it, the thrust is for us to love one another and to always be growing or to excel still more in our love for one another. Not just with any love, but with a certain kind of love. The love of the brethren, it said there in verse 9. We'll define that in a moment. But the text is urging us as God's people to love each other well and faithfully. For after all, love, the scriptures say, is the greatest thing. 
The end of the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13 says, Now these three abide, faith, hope, and love. But love is the greatest of these. And the love in some ways in Scripture is portrayed as the greatest thing. Our experience often in the church is that love is the hardest thing. We understand from the Scriptures that love is a defining quality of God. There's much that the Bible would say about God. There's much that we could say about his character. He's certainly holy. He's certainly just. He's certainly righteous. But our minds immediately go to 1 John 4. God is love. Love is held to us in Scripture as a defining character or quality of God. And we also learn from Scripture that love is common to all of humanity. A defining characteristic of God and common to all of humanity. All of humanity has within them the need for love and the desire to give and to receive love. And the call on the Christian is to love one another in the way that we've been loved. So that because God is love, when we love each other well, that's when we're most being like God. We're called to be imitators of God as his people. And the fact that love is common to all of humanity is part of the evidence for the fact that we have been created in God's image. God is love. We all have this love thing in us, common to all of us, because we've been created in the image of God. And love is from God to humanity a gift. The fact that love is common tells us we are created in the image of a living God. But the fact that though love is common, love is often so rare in our world is evidence of the fall. Love is common, but there's often a lack of love in our world. Would that be a disputed statement? That seems pretty obvious. And that is evidence of the fall. Love at the same time in our world is that thing among humanity which is most common and most scarce. Everybody recognizes that we need more love. Hence all the songs. All we need is love. You know the one? You know that one? You couldn't recognize it because I can't carry a tune, but you know the one. Name any old song. There's so many songs. If we just had love, if we just loved each other, more love. Oh, there's all those songs. What they usually amount to is non-defined, mushy, silly sentimentalism. Trying to say very much, trying to get at something incredibly profound, our common need for love, but the common lack of love, and yet not really getting at it. Mushy, undefined sentimentalism. But you see now, in the church... In the church, amongst God's people, it is the intention of God that a certain kind of love would be realized in our lives. In the church now, it's the intention of God that a certain kind of love that we'll define in a moment would abound among us, be realized among us, be part of our experience, our endeavor, and our goal. Of course it ought to be. 
Because the God that we worship, as we said, is love. The God that we worship is love. And we, his his people, have been saved by God through Christ because of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That we might be saved. God is love. We are saved by God through Christ because of love. And we now then become the beloved of God in Christ. It becomes our identity. More than the fact that you're a father, more than the fact that you're a mother, more than the fact that you're a teacher, more than the fact that you were wounded, more than the fact that you were cheated, more than the fact that you're successful or famous, more than any of those things. The truest thing about you is you are the beloved of God. In Christ. It's who we are, Christians. God is love. We are saved by God through Christ because of love. We then become the beloved of God in Christ. And then we all together are children of God. We have the same Father then, the Heavenly Father. And so we now have this relationship that is, the New Testament would say, in various forms and metaphors and ways, thicker than blood. This family, because of love, behold what manner of love God has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God because we have the same father. We now have this family bond. We're getting at what this verse means, this, this love, this family bond. So because we are the beloved of God, saved, because we are loved by God and we worship a God who is loved, then the defining mark of God's people ought to be love. The defining mark. The most obvious characteristic. The most potent thing is people observe us. There'll be other things about us. They ought to take note of our our holiness our generosity, our justice, our truthfulness, but superseding all of those things, overarching all those things, the greatest of all those things is that the primary defining characteristic of God's people amongst themselves ought to be love. Jesus said it in no uncertain terms in John chapter 13. A new command I give to you, wasn't actually new. goes all the way back to Leviticus 19, but Jesus is doing something new with it. A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so must you love one another. And then in verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now there's a couple of really important things in that passage. The first is again, Jesus says about his followers, about his people, that the defining mark is love. Saying it again, let me say it again because we need to hear it again. That the world, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love for one another. The, The world ought to look and there ought to be something obvious and attractive about the way that we love each other. When the community looks in, when they find out that we're Christians, 
If they visit one of our gatherings, if they hear about what they're doing or they see us interacting with one another, hear the things that we're sowing into each other's lives, there ought to be something really obvious, otherworldly, supernatural, and attractive. The intent of Christ is that people will look and say, I don't know about what they teach or what they claim or what they're doing or their political stance. I don't, I don't know about all that, but they sure do love one another. I think Jesus is saying that that ought to be a reality in the church, something obvious, attractive, so that people look and say, I, I, I want in on that love. I want to be a part of that love. How do, what, what is that love? And then we talk about Jesus. Second thing that's really important about what Jesus said here is that not only is love the defining mark, but Jesus is the definitive model. That is to say, by implication, our love for one another in the church is not meant to be contingent upon our lovability. Or, someone said amen. (laughs) Or our loveliness. It's not meant to be contingent upon that. It's a different thing than the normal love the world would talk about. Anybody loves the lovely. Anybody has a love for those or things that are lovable. But that's not the impetus within the church. Why? Jesus says, just as I have loved you, when and how did Jesus love us? The scriptures say that while we were yet enemies of God, guilty of our sins, lost in our sins, filthy with our sins before God. The scriptures in no way hint that there is anything lovely or lovable about us. God has loved us because of who he is in spite of who we are. Someone say good news. That's good news. Because God is love. He loves us who in our sins and in our rebellion to him were unlovely. And so now then, the gospel call, the call of Christ and the thrust of the text then is that we are free to love one another in spite of one another. Even with all of our stuff. That's our model. That's the way that Jesus gave it to us. That's the way that we've been loved by God. So the scriptures say then that we love, I love you and you love me and we love one another because we have been loved. First John teases it out a little bit. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. You see, you see the internal logic there? You see the indicative, imperative paradigm? Look, dear friends, since God loved us that much, indicative statement, statement of fact, since we are loved that much by God, 
We surely ought to love one another. Imperative statement of command. This is the way that the commands in Scripture work. Since God this, then we ought to this. Since God loves us so much, in such an undeserved manner, we ought to love one another. As Jesus said, just as I have loved you. That's the logic of it. That's the power of it. That's the gospel truth of it. It goes on, no one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. His love is brought to full expression in us, meaning some of the ways that we experience God's love within the body of Christ is through each other. You know, there's some people and they're like, oh, I was just worshiping on the carpets and I just felt the love of God just overwhelm me or I was at home and I was praying or better yet, I was surfing and I just felt God's love. I just sensed that he loves me so much. And then other people are not like that at all, right? Other people are like, dude, you're so creepy. What are you saying? How do you, what is this? And they're just like, I don't, I don't get that sort of experience. I don't feel or sense that thing. You know, you know how they feel or sense or experiencing the love, experience the love of God? Through you. God's love brought to full expression in the church by our loving of one another. In their moments where they're wondering, am I really beloved? Does anybody really care? Am I really chosen by God? Is God really present in my life? Is God really working in my life? These things are meant to be by God, fleshed out, brought to bear, made real by our love for one another. There's a crux of it, verse 19. We love each other because he first loved us. That gospel motivation. We love because we are beloved by God. Verse 20, if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. Take note of that. That's talking to some of you. Someone says, I love the Lord, but you hate someone else in the church? The Bible says you're a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? I don't know what that means, but that first part. Someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer. That person is a liar. That's really challenged me this week. It's not telling me, okay, well, then you're not a believer. It's telling you, hey, believer, you ought to repent. You ought to repent of this false dichotomy, this incongruency, this non-faithful thing where I'm saying, I love the Lord and I'm singing the songs, but I'm holding malice in my heart toward my brothers. Man, that's tough, isn't it? Verse 21, and he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. It's crystal clear. It's crystal clear what the call is. Okay, but, but, but what is it like? What kind of love are we talking about here? Are we talking about the Beatles' love songs? Are we talking about Air Supply and their love songs? What are we talking? That's a horrible reference. <laughs> Did that first service too. I tried to get it out of my mind. Taylor Swift love songs. What are we talking about here? What does this love look like? Well, I'm almost sure that the text is saying nothing about feelings. 
I am almost sure, now I'm sure, I'm just trying to be humble, but I won't be. I'm sure that the text is saying nothing about the way that we feel or don't feel about a person. That's not what is being spoken of here. The noun in that first verse, verse 9, called brotherly love, that's the Greek word Philadelphia. We call it brotherly love, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. But it's really love that is because of blood connection. It's family love. And what the New Testament does is it co-ops that term. It, it takes that term that was common, like we're family, you're my sister, like we have the same blood, we have the same father, I, I love you. It takes that term and it applies it to the church. And it says there is a family call that's even higher than blood. Blood of Jesus Christ, by which we've been cleansed and brought into relationship with God and through which we become children of God and the beloved sons and daughters of God uses that language. This family love is the noun. But at the end of verse 9, when he uses a verb, for yourselves are taught by God to love, a verb there, it's the Greek word agape. And that has nothing to do with how you feel about someone. This is self-sacrificial, other-oriented love by choice. That's what agape is. It's by choice. It's a love with which God has loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave. It has to do with giving. It has to do with preferring the other. It has to do with self-sacrifice. Neither of them have anything to do with feeling. You know, when you're born into a family, like, I know there's messed up families and this and that. Let's just put that aside for a minute, but... When you're born into a family, generally you, you, you love. Just, it's a blood thing. And then we're called to this choice thing of agape. Look what Jesus says in John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Here he defines sort of agape love for us. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Okay, so what kind of love are we talking about? We're not talking about mushy, sentimental, love song love. We're not talking about, oh, I love dogs or that kind of love. We're talking about something really meaty here. We're not talking about how we feel. We're talking about this gospel-formed, Christ-oriented decision to be willing to lay myself down for others. Man, that's a high call. It's not as simple as, oh, I take a bullet for you, bro. It's like real down-to-earth, nitty-gritty, like, okay, you're in need? I'll be there. You're hurting? I'll, I'll, I'll be there. This is real, giving up what I want, what I need for the good of someone else. It's hard to... It's hard to get at it. Maybe, maybe the closest that we get at it in the natural realm, apart from God working by his Holy Spirit in the church, is the moment we have a baby. Let's talk about babies. I love babies. Mostly mine, but I love babies. And since we're talking about babies, we ought to look at a picture of Fifi, don't you think? Come on. 
Everything is right. She's holding a surfboard. She's on the beach. She's kissing me. She's gorgeous. Everything is right. Leave that picture up till the rapture. But this baby love, the first time that you hold this thing, there's something that happens in the heart of a father, the heart of a mother, where in an instant, you would do anything for that kid. There's nothing more important to you than their well-being. You love them with an overwhelming, all-consuming, I will do anything for you. Some of you little brats don't know you were loved that way. <laughs> you haven't had kids yet, just wait. What, I want them to have better. I want them to go further. I want them to have more. I'm willing to work hard. I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to give up. I'm willing to go through the pain because of how much I love this little thing. That's the closest I could think of to the gospel call of love in the church, and that's a radically high call. It's a blood thing, brotherly love, Philadelphia. It's a choice, self-sacrifice thing, agape. And so I, you know, I just don't know if when the world looks at us or we even look at each other that this is always what's happening in the church. Loving each other that way. I, I'm, I think most about myself. I honestly, when I'm writing sermons, I don't sit around thinking about how much you guys stink. I think about how much I stink. And so I've just had to do some real nitty gritty. You know, where, where am I choosing myself over others? Please take down the picture of Fifi. She's distracting me with her beauty. Am I really preferring others? How much of my decisions are egocentric, me-centered? I had to really wrestle with that this week. And and then perhaps, because, you know, we can't like, we can't look at the whole church and say, look, we're supposed to love this way. Everybody start loving this way. We got to take it down to an individual level and, and, and ask myself some hard questions. Am I really seeking ways to love others? with this sort of self-sacrificial love? Am I, am I looking to be generous and forgiving and gracious and self-sacrificial on a regular basis? Are you, are you? I mean, there's a multitude of needs within the church that go unmet. When you hear about volunteer needs, when you hear about prayer meetings, when you hear about financial needs, when you see someone who is sitting in the corner and clearly no one is speaking to them, when brokenness is here, when there's a call to forgiveness, when I've been offended, when I've been belittled, when I've been looked over. Sometimes I look at the evidence of my life and my life in the church and it seems like I am the person that I clearly love most. I want you to think about your life now. What would the evidence be? You know, someday we may be pulled into courts of law to show whether or not we're Christians. It's happening in other places in the world. Happened in this context. 
Would we be convicted of Christianity in a court of law by the way that we love one another? I don't know, man. Galatians 5 pushes it down for us a little bit. For you are called to freedom, right? We've been set free through the cross of Jesus Christ. We're free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and the weight of the law and the demands of the law. We've been set free through the work of Jesus Christ. You're free, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. The idea here would be just self-oriented. Great, I'm free now. It's all about me. But through love, serve one another. We've been brought into Christianity. The logical flow, the Holy Spirit-led scripture-formed flow is now that I've been set free and forgiven, how might I begin to serve and to love others. Do you do that in any way at all? In the church now. This is just talking about the church, this text. It's talking about the church. For the whole of the law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then this little parenthetical, but very helpful saying, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Slander, backbiting, gossip, unforgiveness, those things destroy a church when love builds the church. I went to the beach yesterday with Kate and Fifi, my wife and daughter. My son was uh, at his job. He's 14 years old, has his first full-time job, teaching surf lessons, right? Awesome job. Who does, he's making more than I was making when I was like 30. Who doesn't want that job? It's unbelievable. So he was at his job. So Kate and Fifi and I went to the beach and we were driving down to uh, Ventura. And do some, some of you here know that surf spot Mondo's? You know that one between uh, Solomar and whatever? It's that one spot. It's where all the longboarders always are. And it's that lame little Waikiki wave that comes in. And, and the road goes right along the beach there. We were not going there. We were driving by. But as we were driving by to go to another beach, there were these two guys sitting on the freeway side of the road. So you have the mountains, right? This is our coastline right here between Carp and Ventura. You have the mountains, you have the freeway, and then you have this little road that runs along the beach and then the beach. And they're sitting outside of their car on the freeway side of the road, the non-beach side of the road, in folding chairs looking at the beach. And we're driving by slow because there's lots of pedestrians. I'm thinking, these guys are idiots. But my wife, much more spiritual than I, says to me, that is such a metaphor, a picture of how so many Christians live their life. Sitting on the wrong side of the road in a chair, watching, looking at sand and the wonderful water, but refusing to ever cross the road and lay down in the warm sands of generosity, refusing to cross the road and wade into the glorious waters of self-sacrifice. They sit there in their armchairs, not willing to cross over, which is what Jesus was talking about in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and missing out on the sands of generosity and the waters of self-sacrifice. And no wonder so many Christians sit here week after week and say, well, I'm bored. 
course you're bored. You don't do anything. You don't get in the sands of generosity. You don't get in the waters of self-sacrifice. You just sit there week after week thinking about you and what it means for you and how it affects you and how does this meet your needs and what am I going to do? And your Christianity is boring because it's barely Christianity. It's more selfianity wrapped in frequent going churchianity. And that's boring. God is always, because he loves us, leading us toward the sand, the water, these beautiful, hard places, because that's what reflects him, this loving generosity. That's what accomplishes his purposes. And so God is always teaching us to love one another. That's why Paul was able to say in verse 9 with all confidence, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? God is always teaching us to love one another. Two ways that he does that. One we've already spoken of. Through the gospel or the basis with which we love one another. We love each other and are able to do that even in spite of one another because we've been so loved by God. But then the other thing that we need to give careful attention to, the way that God is teaching us to love one another, is through opportunities or situations. I find that so many times in my life, I'm looking for a way not to sacrifice. But God is bringing me opportunities to sacrifice for the well-being of others. And by doing that, I then learn to love, agape love, as it says in the text. We just spend a lot of time isolating, walling up, and arranging circumstances so that we won't have to deal with those things. But God is in those opportunities. God's in the needs. God's in the lonely person. God is wanting to do something in our unforgiveness, in our bitterness, where we've been hurt, where we've looked over. There's lessons for us going to those who are unlovely, unlovable, hard to love. I'm talking about you. That was a joke. Nobody laughed. (laughs) I can remember the first time, you know, this text is not talking about feeling, but I can remember the first time that I realized that I really loved the church. Not this church, it was before that, but I was with a group of believers and I was in a room with people that if it wasn't for Jesus, I would never be in the room with those people. Not because there was anything wrong with them. They just, just not, they just weren't, you know, they didn't surf. So I never would have been in the room with them. And I looked around this room and none of them surfed. None of them did what I did, were interested in what I was interested in, looked like what I looked like. The only thing we had in common was Jesus. And I remember looking around and thinking, I really love these people and want to serve them. Supernatural man. That wasn't me. Supernatural. That's Holy Spirit transformation that takes place in the life of the believer. I love it when uh, I see other Christians around town from the church or, or from another church or whatever, and we talk for a little bit. And then, we're, then when we're departing, I say, okay, I love you, dude. 
And they say, I love you, dude. And you look around in Vons and people are like. <laughs> I love the freedom that comes within Christianity because we're children of the same father. To be able to say and to mean, and the point of the text is to endeavor to live out, I love you, dude. How many times on a Sunday morning, I hope a lot that you, you hug someone here at church, you say, I love you. Because God loves us, he's always leading us toward these sorts of things and always teaching us. And because God is always teaching us, we should always be growing in love. Chapter 3, if you move up a chapter to verse 12, Paul says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. Increase and abound. And then in verse 10 of chapter 4, For indeed you do practice it or show it is the idea toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. So it wasn't just about their church. It was about the church. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Paul says, here's what ought to be happening in the life of the Christian. We ought to be abounding and excelling, growing, this is a common vernacular, in our love for one another. Why? Because God is love. We've been saved by God through Christ because of love. And we now become the beloved of God. And so we're called to love one another because we have been loved by him. And because God, God is always teaching us through his word and by his Holy Spirit to love one another. And if God is teaching us, then we ought to be growing, excelling to the point of abounding is what the text is saying. How do we grow and excel in love? It's the same way that God is teaching us. First, keeping ourselves in the love of God, the truth of the gospel. That's why we read scripture every day because I need to be reminded of God's love and my identity in light of God's love. This is why we study theology, because it's about God who is love. This is why we give ourselves to right doctrine, because it's about the love of God in Christ. This is why we come together and fellowship together, and we sing these songs, and we hear these sermons, and we get together in home groups and in small groups. It's all endeavoring to be reminded of the glorious fact that though we were rebels and stained in our sin, we are loved by God and have been saved by his son. And the more we give ourselves to that, and let that form us, the more we grow, excel, abound in love for one another. That's the way that it works, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, how do we grow and excel? We start looking for those ways to love the brethren. Looking for ways to sacrifice. I'm just going to be super honest. You guys are never going to come back to this church again. <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm mar- I marvel at the fact that we have to beg you guys to volunteer for stuff. Kids, cleaning the church, parking ministry, camps, coffee, whatever it is. I marvel at the fact. We talk about it as a staff. We sit down and say, how are we going to get people to serve? We can't get people to serve. What are we going to do? Well, let's pray. Well, what if we put on some music that kind of, while they fill out the card, it plays to their emotions? 
What if we have a really spiffy looking card? What if we make it easier for them? So they fill out the card right there and then we collect it from them on the spot. No, no, that didn't work. So we'll leave a basket out at the connect us so they can fill it out whenever they want. And then, you know, there's no pressure. Well, we'll put it in the back of the seats. Well, we'll put it in the e-bulletin. Well, we'll have Sean do it. We'll have Britt do it. Well, I'm just saying. It's really, really hard to get you guys to do anything self-sacrificial. Now, it is equally as hard to get myself to do so. I'm just like you. I'm with you. And so the scripture together confronts us. I'm just like you. And it says to me, Britt, in the rhythms of your life and the choices of your life, are you more self-oriented or Christ-oriented? And I want to say, as a good preacher and theologian, oh, I'm, I'm Christocentric, I'm, I'm Christ-centered. And the next question is, well, then why aren't you people-centered? Why aren't you other-centered? Why are most of your decisions what's good for you? That's how I've been confronted this week. There's more to the text. I'm just going to leave it. I don't really understand it anyway. <clears throat> no, I honestly don't. <laughs> like that whole verse, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hand. Well, I guess I get it. Attend to your own business. Don't be a busybody. Work with your own hands. Don't be lazy. There we go. I just want to, it's an awesome Bible teacher. I know, it's really good. <laughs> and nowhere in my job description does it say I have to understand all of Scripture. <laughs> but I do understand this. I, you, we need to grow in family Philadelphia. Agape, self-sacrifice love as a church. And Jesus said, and Paul says, it has to do with our witness, but it also has to do with our well-being. We've been made in the image of God, and we have an intense need to receive and to give love. And in some very special way, that is to take glorious expression amongst Christ's followers. So the worship team is going to come up, and I want us to really, really give ourselves now. Really give ourselves to seeking the Lord in this time. To really be asking the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, where, don't look at the worship team, look at me. Holy Spirit, where am am I super self-oriented when you're calling me to be other-oriented because I'm loved by God? Where have I been refusing to love self-sacrificially or refusing to be generous amongst my brethren in the church and you're calling me to do that? Let the Holy Spirit tell you those things. It's not my job to tell you those things. Let the Holy Spirit tell you those things. I've just told you what the text means. But let the Spirit convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. And ask the Holy Spirit to pour the love of the Father in your heart because we can't muster this. We're not called to fake it. It's got to be the transformative work of God's love in our lives as applied by the Spirit. So ask Him to do that. Maybe you're saying, gosh, I feel... I feel far from God. You know what Jesus said? The Father is seeking those, looking for people who worship him in spirit and in truth.
Maybe you're just feeling far from God. Come get on your face. Come to the carpets. Get on your face before this God who loves you and ask him to transform your heart and your life for the glory of Jesus Christ. Realidad. Amigos y amigas. Ven aquí los carpetos. Que no. Cristo te ama. Cristo es todo para ti. Ven aquí. Espanol. Let's do real, real business now with the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, that you would come and help us with these things. Holy Spirit, for sure we need you to come and pour the love of the Father into our hearts. And once again, remind us of this glorious love, how radically we're loved. And, and then we need you, Holy Spirit, to bring us to places of repentance and truth, and honesty, reflection. And then as you forgive us, we need you to transform us more into the image of Christ, to teach us to walk in love as we've been loved.